XY Group invites all AEC industry leaders to the 2024 AEC Small Business and Entrepreneurship Forum, the premier event for small firms in the AEC sector. Experience innovative strategies and insights on May 21st, crafted by Zweig Group's industry experts. Engage in keynotes and interactive sessions focused on recruitment, retention, and business growth. Join Zweig Group for this unique networking opportunity and take your business to new heights. Secure your spot today and be part of the AEC industry's future. Visit ZweigGroup.com for more information. The Zweig Group team looks forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the Zweig Letter Podcast, putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting advice and guidance in your ear. Zweig Group's team of experts have spent more than three decades elevating the industry by helping AEP and environmental consulting firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver invaluable management, industry, client, marketing, and HR advice directly to you, free of charge. The Zweig Letter Podcasts, elevating the design industry one episode at a time. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I'm excited today. I'm here with Greg Graves. Greg is the former CEO of Burns and McDonald, um, just an all-around great guy and, and someone that I had a chance to uh, check out from afar online, as we do with when we go to Dr. Google and and uh, as we talk to other people that, that know people in the industry. But uh, Greg comes highly recommended, and uh, he's an individual that has just not allowed any grass to grow under his feet, even though he is technically retired. And, uh, and Greg, Greg, is, um, Greg is doing a lot of great things uh, up in the Kansas City area, and um, he is currently um, working on a book, which we're going to talk about. And he's, he's worked on a number of things, but I'd, I'd like to just introduce Greg Graves, former CEO of Burns & McDonald's, to the audience here at uh, the Zweig Letter Podcast. So without further ado, Greg Graves, how are you doing today? I'm great, Randy, and thanks for having me on. And since you checked me out on Google, I'm glad that none of the bad stories have hit <laughs> there yet. No, no, none at all. Actually, I found some really cool videos. I found some stuff in the archives. You'd be surprised what's out there and and uh, things that you maybe you have forgotten about people can find, which is kind of cool. But I think it will lend uh, the information that I gained will lend itself to our conversation today. But I'd love for you just to tell our audience a little bit about yourself, um, how you came to end up as the CEO of Burns and McDonald's, a very well-respected uh, company in the design industry. And, and I, I would just love for you to just kind of share for people your superhero origin story as I like to call it uh okay so Deanna and I are just a couple of South Dakota kids I grew up in uh, southeast South Dakota small town she grew up about 20 minutes from Mount Rushmore uh, in uh, the Black Hills of South Dakota I went to the only engineering school my parents uh, could afford to send me to which was the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology in Rapid City where I met uh Deanna, we got married way too young, but uh, got lucky that it, uh, that it worked for us. Uh, in the late 1970s, every engineering and construction firm in America was hiring. It was the middle of the space race. It was the middle of the, the missile race, uh, you know, the nuclear race between America and Russia. And so everybody was hiring, and we had offers all over the country. But to be, uh, to be truthful, moving to an L.A. or a Houston was a big move for a couple of kids who'd only been out of state a couple of times. Yeah. And uh, so we drove our one car to Kansas City, Missouri, and took the job that was offered by Burns McDonald. We did not know a single soul <laughs> on my first day, June 30th, 1980. Wow. Uh, the company went over, had good times and bad times, but in the first few years, the company was owned by Armco Steel. And uh, we were fortunate enough in the mid-1980s when the steel business in America was absolutely, you know, catastrophic, that they sold off anything they could find for cash. And one of those was Burns McDonald. 
And in 1986, Burns McDonald became employee owned. Hmm. Uh, I worked at Burns McDonald for all 38 years of my career. I was one of those lucky kids that I got to have seven different jobs, but all at the same place. And uh, through a combination of hustle and probably a little bit of skill and a lot of backing from my uh, family and a few good timing issues, I became the chief executive officer of the company in 2004 and was lucky enough to have a good run as the CEO and chairman for 13 uh, years. I remember a Harvard study that came out about the time that I took over that said no company should ever have a CEO for more than seven years because they'll run out of ideas and they'll run out of steam. And I'm not, I'm not so certain that that isn't true to a certain extent, but I vowed that it wouldn't happen to me. <laughs> and so uh, I took uh, early retirement at the end of 2016. I vowed that when the next person was ready, then it was time, then it's time for you to go. And uh, so after those 13 years, I retired and, and uh, somebody told me the most important thing not to do when you retire is retire. And so I've taken on about anything that anybody ever asked me to do. I, I chair the board of a giant hospital system here in Kansas City, University of Kansas Health System, 11,000 employees, obviously going through a very difficult year with COVID. I chair or vice chair several other boards, including a private school in uh, Kansas City, I'm the lead director for a large public company. Um, and then uh, my main passion over the last two years has been a ranch property that Deanne and I are developing. And most importantly, my uh, book titled Create Amazing that will come out next spring. Wow. I mean, I, I'm just getting... That's enough. That's a lot. Yeah, that, that, that is a lot. So... Um, man, so that you, so you have done you you've done a lot. You had seven jobs. I, I I don't know. I'm trying to decide where I want to start, but I think I do know where I want to start because I think it it will it will lead to a couple of other things. So I do want to get to the book, and I do want to talk about some of the other endeavors that you've put your mind to. But you're absolutely right. I, I I've heard it said before, and and watching my grandfather uh, as he grew older, he told me I'm not retiring until I die, and he literally worked until he was 84 years old. He only stopped working because he had had a mild, had had a mild stroke and we would not allow him to drive into New York City anymore. He used to work at the United Nations uh, as a reporter. So, you know, it was hard to take that license from him. And, at, and then and only then did we ever see a true decline. And it was just because his why really wasn't there any longer. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I think that's great. So my advice to you, and as I always tell people that will, that will listen when I talk to them, I'm never retiring and I'm, I'm taking a, a, a card from my grandfather's playbook. So I, I certainly encourage you with that. And I say kudos to you. Um, well, the biggest difference, Randy, is that uh, no one pays you anymore. No. Yes, that's, that's the, the, that is the difference. Yes, so you've got to save your coins. So that, that there is that, and 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 my grandfather was really good about that. That's for sure. But um, so so I do want to come back to it because you said something really interesting, and 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 it's it is it's almost like an anomaly nowadays. When I talk to young engineers, young design professionals, or architects for that matter, and I talk to them nowadays, I tell guys and gals that you know you may work it, you may have you may work at seven or eight or nine or 10 different firms. I mean, you had seven jobs at one firm and that, that there, that is, um, there is a huge difference there um, in terms of the way that you came up through the design industry and the, the way that a lot of these young Gen Z kids that are just coming out of school as well as millennials are looking at the arc of their career. And I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are about the juxtaposition between those two variables, what you were able to experience throughout the 80s and 90s, and then, uh, you know, climbing into the, the, to the, the chief position, right? You worked your way up, literally worked your way up um, to the top. Um, what, what would you say to young people nowadays coming into this industry that, that feel like, okay, I've got to go and work multiple places before I can really find my place? Yeah, I think the worst advice young kids get coming out of college, maybe even in any field, but in particular in the design fields, is that work three or four years and then leave that firm and, and go to work for another. Um, that, that That's fine advice if you're completely unhappy 
if you think that company just doesn't get it. But I don't think you really are experienced enough to know the answers to those questions after just a few years. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, it would have been the worst thing ever to have left the place. And if I think of the happiest, in fact, some research out of Rutgers shows that people who have worked at a firm for a long time tend to be happier than the people who haven't maybe gotten to know that firm, firm yet. Uh, and I think the other thing that people don't do is if you're unhappy in your career or maybe at a particular firm after three or four years or maybe you have the seven-year seven year itch, go explore your own firm for the opportunities that, that might exist before you think that that opportunity only exists at some other firm. And now you've displaced your family. You don't really know that you're going to be happy at that other place yet, if you will. Right. And, uh, and then depending on, on what your retirement plan looks like, if you're at an employee owned firm and you think, and the firm is, is being a, is being a success, you better be pretty darn sure that it's somewhere that you got to leave or abandon or use your, use your right words there. For me, there were a couple of times in my career that I ran out of just interest in my current position, if you will. Mm -hmm. And some might have told me that it was time to explore other opportunities or places. And what I found for myself was I always found that opportunity within, within my place. And um, Randy, as you know, sometimes you got to be bold within those, within those firms. And if you're, you're a performer, or at least if you're just a hard worker, your human resources department, your boss, your boss's boss, they don't want you to leave. They know the cost of, of replacement. And so they are often the best place to go and say, you know, I might be interested in doing something new or something that interests me more, somewhere I can make a bigger difference uh, to the company. Um, think long and hard about, about before leaving an opportunity that might be the best one you've ever had. And it might just be the one you already have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's sagely advice right there. And, and, and it, it is, you know, you really do have to look at the whole picture and not just um, be um, a, a prisoner of your current feelings about things because feelings are going to change. And I'm sure throughout your, your years at, um, um, at uh, Burns and McDonald that you, you had ups and downs, you had highs and lows. And so you went through a myriad of things. What, what changed for you from an ownership perspective or how did you look at things when, uh, when, when Burns and McDonald changed in, in 86 uh, and became a, a company owned or employee owned company? I admit I was probably pretty typical of the average person who goes to work for an employee owned firm. It, it sounds good, and uh, you're curious how this thing might work out. Uh, but for me, I was I was out on a field assignment when the transition took place at <laughs> Burns McDonald, so I probably didn't get all the cheerleading that the folks in the home office got. And one of the things I talk about in my in my book, in terms of in terms of from a managerial or from an executive uh, position, you have to get that employee owner's ESOP account up to a certain level before one day they open up that envelope and they go, whoa, I had no idea that this could work this good. And for me, it was four or five years that all of a sudden I said, okay, I've been in my 401k now for 10 years and my ESOP just passed it after four, after four years. Yeah. And it goes back to the, when you work for a company like that, you don't, you don't have anybody else to give the money to <laughs> if your employee owned in your company is successful. Yeah. And so uh, our company was, uh, became employee owned thanks to a former chief executive officer of ours, whose name was Newt Campbell. And, and he used it simply as a, uh, as a tool to survive the transition of our company being, being sold from by Armco Steel. <laughs> and, and it took a while, I think, even for those executives to realize Hey, this is something that can really create accumulating wealth for the people who work here, not just for the executives or not just for outside owners over time. And uh, the longer it went, the more I knew and the more I believed. And it wasn't until actually late in my career that I said, 
we have a we have a duty now that we've done this and been successful at it we have a duty outside of our firm to make sure that america realizes all it can gain from employee ownership and not just the people who work at those firms yeah and and i think that is you know, it's so funny because you're, you're kind of mirroring and echoing the things that I've heard from other leaders of other design firms that have gone over to employee ownership and just the difference that, is, that it's made. And I know before we started recording, we were talking even a little bit about the whole retention factor and how that plays into, uh, into employee ownership and, you know, just people not having to feel like they have to leave. And if you have a dog in the fight, it's so much harder to give that up for the unknown dog. Dog, right. And so it's like, how do what I might as well stay here because this is I, I, I know this, but I don't know what I'm going to get myself into. And I, I think that there's something to be said for that. I know that there is has been at least in the past few years in the design industry, a movement towards more ESOPs. I mean, there have been more ESOP consultants talking to clients of Zui Group for years now. And it just seems to be that those numbers have even proliferated even more in, in the past, I don't know, five or six years. Well, there's 7 million employee owners in America today. And after grocery, design firms is the biggest, uh, the biggest component of that. And uh, it's because I think professionals tend to be long-term planner types, and they see the advantage of employee ownership over time. And so more and more people are interested in it. And within design firms, uh, the cost of replacing a seven to 10 year employee can be one X their salary. And so the advantage to the firm, just forget about the nuisance of having higher experienced people, the advantage to the firm or just financially yeah. of, of not losing. I was the CEO of Burns McDonald for 13 years. I had 60 officers within my officer group. When I retired, I had one officer of our firm quit our company in my entire 13 year span. Wow. And two years later, he came back to work <laughs> for our firm. And wow. so people who've been there for a while, it just, it just, it almost all but eliminates. If you're good at this at all, you're going to be successful at reducing your turnover rate well below half of the national, uh, of the national average. And, and what it did for Burns McDonald was once we were able to reduce the turnover of executives and long-term employees, it let us focus all of our recruiting on new grads. Yeah. Let's be honest. The best new employee at Burns McDonald every year was a new grad. Now, we didn't know which one it was <laughs> yet, but the best way to improve your firm talent-wise, new grads. The best way to overcome uh, diversity issues at your firm and almost all design firms in America tend to be way overly dominant white male. The best way to improve those numbers is at col is on college campuses mm -hmm. um, where diversity is at least making some uh, headway. You want to bring new ideas in. You want to bring people in from different geographies. You want to grow your regional office groups. You want people who are more interested in international assignments than people who've been around for a while new grads. And so we were able to focus our whole recruiting program on how do we bring in 100 to 150 new graduates every year from all around the, the country. And uh, the talent level just exploded. Hmm. In fact, there were a lot of them that uh, I was glad we hired them after I had the job because they were immediately in my office measuring for new drapes, you know? <laughs> it's like my turn will come next. So yeah, no, I, 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 I really appreciate that because I think that, um, and it's something that I've said to firms all the time is that it's so hard for an average design firm to really hyper-focus on getting those, that new crop of engineers or architects coming right out of school mm. when you're still trying to fill positions on some of your mainline needs because right. those, because you're losing like, you know, you're the best of your best people. And that, that I think has always been a problem for a lot of firms as to how do, how do we shore that up? And I've always told them that you have to constant, constantly be priming the pump at that, at that graduate 
you know, at that graduate level where people are just getting out of school. And then, you know, if you can work on some other things or incorporate something like uh, an employee ownership program that that gives people a, a, a piece of the pie, if you will, then it's a lot easier for you to start dealing with all of the different experiences and feelings that you're going to encounter with with the people that work for you. Sure, and almost every design firm in America has some semblance of a summer internship program. And every college, engineering, architectural, construction management, et cetera, design uh, uh, student is looking for a summer internship program, some after their freshman year, but for sure after their sophomore and junior years. And yeah, it's a cost, but it's an extremely low cost. When you, you get to try them out, if you will. Right. But I always said, as important, they get to try us out. They get to see how hard the people at our place work. They get to see how hard the projects that we take on are technically and from a point of view of, of just being someone who hustles. Right. And I, if, if they think it's too hard or they just don't want to work that hard, well, then good. I want them to weed me out as an employer, not just me weeding them out. Mm-hmm. Um, we usually had most of our May graduates hired by the previous August at the end of that previous summer's summer internship program. We had a night that we called the Night of Opportunity, and we would invite all the kids who we were making permanent offers um, you know, in, and we would invite their parents and grandparents. And the parents and grandparents always came. You know, because they're always proud as heck. Of absolutely, kids. absolutely. And uh, I would always man the booth where they you talk to talk about employee ownership. And the kids didn't always come to see me, but the parents always came to see me to right. talk about our employee ownership as a retirement program. And then I'd always see them whispering sweet dollar signs into their kids' ears <laughs> at the end of the night. Yeah. And, and uh, it was always great fun. Uh, I love that. And, and it, yeah, and I can appreciate that. I mean, my, my, my parents, uh, both my parents taught in a very strong public school system where they had a very strong retirement program. And I just remember, you know, my mom served 35 years as a teacher and I mean, she loved every minute of it. And, and I look back now at all of the bells and whistles that she got as a public, and this was as a public school teacher um, and then her healthcare package and everything else. I mean, it was just, it was just, it was, it wasn't just the money. It was everything that, that, that made it special. And I think when a company can put together a program or a package that, you know, really can, can be with someone for the longest period of time, because let's face it, um, it's just not commonplace these days with firms. I mean, people just don't, people complain and say, well, we don't, those opportunities just don't exist as much anymore. Well, sure. And uh, even though as an ESOP advocate, I'm not always the biggest American pension system advocate. Right. My dad was a teacher math and science, retired on South Dakota's teacher pension program. And if there's, any, um, if there's any profession in America that deserves to have an incredible retirement program, it's people who are teaching our kids. Yeah. Because we all know they don't get paid much while they're doing it. Right, right. So at least we ought to have a good pension program in place. And my dad actually had a great pension. Yeah. And frontline healthcare workers. I would add those to the mix. Um, not so much. I mean, doctors, listen, I got some cousins that are doctors. They're doing quite well for themselves. But I mean, I'm talking about the frontline healthcare workers, the people that are in the waiting rooms, the people that are cleaning up the OR after an operation. And, and, and of course, the nurses and, and orderlies and everybody else that's there. And they do you know, for uh, for all intents and purposes, which is a thankless job, unfortunately, and I know it's been brought to light more now because of COVID nineteen. But but we sometimes forget about those folks, and um, you know, I don't know. So especially this year, huh? Yeah, absolutely, especially absolutely. So, um, well, tell me this. I, I would love to. I, I happened to spy out a video that you did a couple of years ago with the Girl Scouts of America, and it was oh, a really yeah. cool. It was a really cool video, and I really liked what you had to say to that young lady. I mean, she wanted to be a nuclear scientist or a fighter pilot, so she had some big <laughs> ambitions. And but but I, I recognized that right away. You 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 were talking to her about the the importance of. Getting 
getting more women into STEM programs, um, you know, and, and just creating more diversity in the design space. This industry, as an African-American male, of course, I have seen it because I've been involved since 97. You've been involved with it much longer than I have. But the, the level of diversity in this industry is, is obviously lacking. And, and I would, I would, you know, and I would imagine that, you know, you, you dealt with it at Burns and McDonald, but, but then also now that you've had the perspective of being outside of the organization and, and as you reflect back, is there anything maybe that you would have done differently or what recommendations or advice would you be giving to design firm leaders and design firm owners today that are saying, well, I just don't know where, how to make it diverse. I don't know how to find enough women. I don't know how to find enough African-Americans or Latinos or whatever. What would you, what would your advice be to them today? I, uh, in 2004, I was elected by a board of directors of four white male Christian straight men. (laughs) Uh, in 2017, I retired from a board of six white male Christian straight men, complete failure. And, um, while our industry has made some progress, on male-female diversity, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we have made no or sometimes negative progress in particularly for African-American diversity. Yeah. Um, So uh, the the Girl Scout program in Kansas City has really been trying to push STEM. And four years ago, maybe five years ago, they had a marketing campaign. It was on billboards all over town, recruiting uh, girls into Girl Scouts for its STEM programs. Mm-hmm. And they went to a few different uh, male CEO types in Kansas City and had them do these videos and billboards, et cetera. I did one with uh, Sly James, who was the mayor of Kansas City, Missouri at the time, and a really, really good friend. And the program was, I'm man enough to be a Girl Scout. <laughs> And I, I met with a Girl Scout uh, in my office one day, and they did a YouTube video of her and I. And she was one of the most brilliant young women you could ever meet. I immediately offered her a job <laughs> at Burns <laughs> McDonald. And uh, what, what's happening, in, and this, is like, this has been proven through research, is that inner-city African-American boys and throughout society – girls, especially when they get to middle school, are told by society, but often in the classroom, that science, other than a few on the medical, on the healthcare side, but science, they're not good enough, they're not smart enough, they're not going to be interested, you'll never make it to the end. And that attitude that has permeated the American educational system And very often, it's a female teacher mentor that um, systemically uh, imparts on this young African-American boy or or all girls, this this isn't a field they're interested in. Hmm. Um, uh, African-American and women in engineering colleges in America were making some headway uh, in the early 2000s, but now it's actually going the other way. Yeah. Where uh, women in engineering, I know that number exactly, is down to about 20%. And then when we do get women interested in engineering in school, they tend to gravitate towards areas that aren't the core engineering disciplines, civil, mechanical, structural, electrical. And so they don't always fit into those design firms. My attitude is that those are some of the best excuses I could fall back on, but they are blatant excuses. I did uh, break the barriers for Burns McDonald in that we had our first African-American regional office uh, manager. We had our first African-American vice president. We had our first female, a C-level executive uh, who was absolutely fantastic. And uh, it, it, you don't have to be in a room long to know that if you have people who all have the same experiences in life and they all grew up rural South Dakota kids, 
Um, well, guess what? They all have the same idea when it comes to any problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and you need those different lifetime experiences that come geographically, but they also, more importantly, come through your sex, your race, your sexual orient, orientation, your religion, changes the, out, changes the upbringing you had. It changes your view on the world. And when you have different views in the boardroom or in the executive room or in a, in a project, People will come at those problems in different ways. So some people look at the diversity in our industry as something that we have to do. Yeah. Those people have it wrong. Some people look at it as something we ought to do. And I think those people have it partially right. But the attitude they should have is this will make us better. This will make me a better executive. It will make us a better firm. We will come up with better design solutions and best places to work solutions. And, and, and in just about any area you can consider, if we can be more diverse. Yeah. Um, it, that doesn't even go to the fact that if we can, if we can put in particularly more African-Americans in the design fields, we can help at least make some progress on wealth disparity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because our industry pays pretty well. And if it's an employee ownership uh, program, well, then you, by definition, help economic justice in America. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're preaching to the choir here. No, you're absolutely right. I've, I've gone and spoken to NSBE, the National Society of Black Engineers. You know, I, I'm always amazed, uh, Greg, when I will go out and talk to firms and I say, well, have you... Have you um, recruited at any of the HBCUs and every now and then they'll say, well, what's an HBCU? And I'll explain to them a historically black college or university. And then I'll talk about, well, you know, if you look at North Carolina A&T or Howard University or Fisk, or, I mean, there are a number of HBCUs that produce some outstanding engineers and, um, and, and architects for that matter. And yes. firms, firms just aren't aware of them. And I, I'm like, we'll just start there and, and build on it from that. But, but you're absolutely 100% right. Um, you know, being more diverse in your recruitment process will help solve a lot of, 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 of the problems that we encounter are encountering. And not only that, you'll also get a, a very, um, in a very viable individual that can come help you grow your organization. And I think that, you know, you should also think of it from that perspective. Yes, you're helping somebody else out in their situation, but you're also helping yourself out in the process. And I think you're making America better, but yes. you're making yourself better too. Absolutely. It's not, you're not just making some philanthropic gift. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. You're making yourself better too. And I yeah. think the more people recognize that, Hopefully, Randy, the harder they will work at. Yeah, I, and I think we're there. I mean, obviously, we're at a very, um, we're at a, at the timing of this recording. We're dealing with the pandemic. We're dealing with social unrest in our country. We're dealing with a lot of factors that are affecting us in so many different ways. And you know, sometimes I wake up and I'm I'm hoping that this is like uh, I feel like it's Groundhog Day because every day it's the same thing. It's just I feel like I'm Bill Murray in that movie. And um, you know, but but I I, I have hope um, and I haven't given up the hope. I know some people I have friends that have, but others that have said, you know what, I'm I'm not going to let things get us down. And I think we can move forward from this. And I, and I do believe that we can do that. And so um, I, I see that you have, you have figured out one way to, uh, to, to spread a little bit of hope uh, with your book. And, and could you tell us just a little bit about Create Amazing and, and why, you know, it, it's, it's so, you know, you hear it, it, just about a lot of CEOs when they, when they retire, they typically will write a book. Um, but 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 why for you is this such a a a, a passionate uh, pursuit? Uh, employee ownership at Burns McDonald uh, meant that I got to retire at fifty eight. It meant that I got to put a lot of people into a great retirement. You know, the retirement uh, problem in America is is a huge coming tidal wave. Fifty percent of Americans have zero zero dollars saved for retirement and and those are often people 55 and, and up and as economic uh and productivity gains have happened in america it's become the wealth disparity gap is growing it's growing quickly 
And pe- people want to <clears throat> complain about the 1%, if you will. I'm a guy who in my life went from one 1% to the other 1%. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the 1% have gained economic strength in America in the last 10 or 15 years. But the top 10% of the, of the wealthiest people in America have exploded yeah. versus the bottom 90%. The top 10% of, of the wealthiest people in America own 67% of the wealth in America. And the bottom 90% own 33% of the wealth in America. Well, no wonder we have a coming retirement <laughs> crisis. And so Create Amazing, the book, is and it's, uh, subtitled Turning Employees into Owners for Explosive Growth. The subtitle that was given to me by my book agent um, <laughs> is, a, is a journey for employee owners, for people who are thinking about employee ownership, for people who are thinking about selling their company, hopefully for government officials and, and just people who are interested in business or the economy, of why. Most importantly, why we should consider more to have more employee owners in America. So there's about 7 million people who are employee owners in America one way or another. Uh, out of 132 million people in America who have a job. Right. Um, now you have to take out maybe people who work for the government or people who work for non nonprofits, but about 100 million people in America could work at firms that are employee owned. And if you just doubled the number of employee owners in America, you would make huge progress on wealth disparity. So my, my argument in why in the book, the book subtitles are very, very reaching. They're why, what, who, and how. And then a little bit of fun on both ends. But in the chapter why, there, there's a description of why pushing for more employee ownership in America is in the best interest of the individual. It's in the best interest of our country from the point of view of economic justice. Mm-hmm. And even if you won't, even if you don't want to give me any of those, it makes America more productive. It makes America more competitive. It goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, the more we learn about Thomas Jefferson, he may have not been that good of a guy. But that doesn't change the fact that his brilliance on making American farmers owners, giving them property and then saying, okay, starve or don't starve versus, you know, versus the monarchies, monarchies we left behind in Europe. He, he created the first model of individual ownership in our country. And then, of course, he furthered it with the Louisiana Purchase and et cetera, et cetera. And that model exists today in the American ESOP that ESOPs will outcompete their non-ESOP counterparts in America, but more importantly for our country, they will outcompete companies across the world. We want to outcompete Russia and China and India in the future. Make the employees owners. Make them responsible for their own success. And then the great part along the way is if you work at an employee-owned firm and it's successful, you ain't counting on no pension or 401k for your retirement. You are likely becoming a philanthropist yourself. You know, Social Security, pensions, 401k programs are designed to create non-poor retirees. They are not designed to create any semblance of wealth amongst our retirees, or, or particular people who are just aren't dependent on, on the government. And ESOPs are exactly designed to create wealth within people as they approach retirement. Um, and so you can tell I'm passionate about the subject. I, yeah, I think I see it's that. not just for those firms who are considering it and how to get it done, but for the country overall. So when will this book be out? Because I, well, I want to read. Uh, it. We have determined. <laughs> we have determined. My publisher is Ben Bella, and they are a fantastic publishing firm. I'm incredibly uh, impressed with them already. Mm-hmm. But uh, they and I have agreed that this is clearly a post-vaccine book. 
Okay. There'll be lots of book signings, lots of book launches, lots of big companies who will be interested where I will attend, you know, meetings, et cetera, et cetera, to, to speak on the subject. And so if you can tell me, Randy, right now when I'm going to get vaccinated, then I can tell you when you can publish that. <laughs> and I can't, I can't answer that. And you, and you are the, the, the head of a, uh, a 12,000, 11,000 person uh, hospital system, and you don't know, so I don't yeah. think any of us know. And actually, uh, the University of Kansas Health System, we are one of the sites for Oxford University's vaccine, vaccine okay. clinical trial. Okay. So we have uh, 1,200 people in Kansas City who have gotten that shot of the of the Oxford vaccine, 800 got a real one and 400 unfortunately got the dummy. Yeah. And so we're midway through that phase three clinical trials. I'm, I'm really hopeful. I'll be honest, based on the people I get to talk to, including the folks at the national institutes of health, that there will be vaccines available for healthcare workers, frontline workers, like you said, the people who most deserve it. Yeah. Um, November. Okay. I hope. Yeah. And then uh, hopefully for you and me soon after. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hope so. Cause I'm telling you, I, I am tired of wearing a mask and you know, nowadays the new normal for us is our kids telling our kids, I have three boys and you know, making sure they've got their mask and their backup mask in their backpack. So, I mean, yeah. it's just, it's yeah. just the re- it's the new normal in the reality yeah. of the day. I'm like so many, I don't want to live this way anymore. Mm-mm. But I no. don't want to get COVID more. No, <laughs> no, absolutely so, not. Uh, yeah, there's this, there's this word out there, you know, that it's mutating. It's not as bad now, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's not a better health system to go to with COVID than the University of Kansas in the world. Yeah, and we had people die last weekend. Absolutely. And so this is this is a terrible sob. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's only going to be beaten with a vaccine. And so we need to do it as fast and as safe as possible. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree 100%. So, um, man, you, you've kind of laid a lot out here. Is is there anything else that uh, that you're, you're seeing in the industry before we close out? Um, anything, anything that you're reading in the tea leaves about where our industry is headed in, in the next four to five years. I think there's going to be a lot of change. You know, I know we talk about, you know, you can talk about Ray Kurzweil and the singularity effect and all this other stuff and these massive computers that are going to be able to process way more information than any engineer or architect could process. But there's something to be said for good design. And I think human beings create good design. And I'm just curious to know your thoughts about where you see this industry headed in the short term, say like in the next, you know, three to five years post pandemic. Sure. Um, one thing we know is it will be changing. Yeah. It's always changing. <laughs> right. When I was an early engineer, there was an engineer, and for every engineer, there were two detailers doing drawings. Now, for every 10 engineers, there's only one designer Put, putting those ideas into a, 3D, into a 3D virtual smart database model. Mm-hmm. And so it's certainly changing for... for but I, the, the biggest thing that's going to happen in our industry in the next three to five years, in my opinion, is the opportunity for explosive growth. And I'm not just saying that because of employee ownership, or even though I think it's the easy, no even questions way that these firms should go at this point. Interest rates in America and, and likely worldwide are going to be historically low, and they're going to be historically low for a while. There is no way the Federal Reserve can allow interest rates to be booming up with the national debt that the country has just taken on. And it will use everything in its power to keep those interest rates extremely low. Low interest rates, the country sort of taking a year off. The fact that we're falling behind on infrastructure in America, not just oil, gas, power, energy, the things that you, that you think about water, wastewater, environmental, transportation, and, and now with the coming changeover um, of energy sources in America that's certainly going to occur as we start to come to the realization that the earth is warming. <laughs> um, that's, that, that's, not, that's not bad for the design industry. It's explosive for the design industry. 
Yeah. And so, so those who are getting good at what they're good at, the opportunity to grow and to grow fast for your people, for your owners, for your city, um, and for us, most importantly, for our country, um, it's, it's out there and it's going to be out there in a big way. CEOs in America who are bored currently because they don't have enough to do because of COVID, they better get themselves straight <laughs> and be ready and be thinking bold, be thinking bold. Um, there's a reason the S&P and the NASDAQ are at record levels and the mm-hmm. Dow's almost at record levels. The, the people who do all that investing aren't dumb. They know that the future is extremely bright yep. and it's bright here, right in our country. And the person, the people who have to accomplish that are are primarily at the design and construction firms of this country. So I, it's time to be ready to go. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're telling every design firm owner or leader to have your track shoes on. So, um, you know, I, 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 I lied. There was one last thing I did <laughs> want to ask you about. I appreciate that. There was something that you said to the young lady in this video, and I'll put the video in our show notes so people can watch it because I thought it was really good. It's only three minutes long. But she asked you, you know, or or I guess she was talking about the most important thing about being a leader. And you said something that really stuck with me because it's something that I talk about when when I've done leadership training for Zui Group or talked about it with anyone that would listen. You said leaders are listeners. And I don't know that we have enough listeners, you know, in our organizations, because I think when you truly separate how you feel about something from the, the, the actual act of listening, the, the, the internalizing of what somebody else is saying to you, um, you gain so much perspective that way. And I don't think it happens enough. I don't think listening is practiced enough in, in any vertical, any industry, but you know, especially in the design industry, because I talk to people that are always saying, hey, I would say more, but you know, I don't feel heard anyway, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and do my work. Yeah, how sick are you, Randy? This isn't just a uh, an executive issue in America, but it's an issue of, uh, what did you say, Randy? Right. <laughs> it's like dual tasking, texting, checking yes. my email, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. There, there were times, I admit, in Burns Mandel officer meetings when I would have three or four important things to say at the beginning or the end of a meeting, and I would have to ask everyone to close their laptops, mm. right? My second favorite book after anything Jim Collins has ever read was a book I highly recommend you. It's called Fish. And it's about the Seattle fish market where they throw the fish, you know, to each other. They throw it to their customers. They wrap it up. It's a very short book. It's two plane rides and you're done. Well, you could read it in a day if you wanted to. And you know how when the Notre Dame football players, they're going going down the steps, going down the field, they all tap their hands and something says, be a champion today. Mm -hmm. At, At the fish market, they tap something that said, be present. So don't be distracted when your customer comes up and is looking to, you know, decide between the cod and the salmon. Be present for that customer in that moment. And that means to listen, not, not hear them, listen to them, empathize with them, understand what their needs are. And executives in America, it is it has become so easy to be so distracted by all the things that you're interested in and all the things that you should be that when you have that one chance to really listen to do it. Yeah. Uh, You'll be smarter in the end. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's great. Yeah. I, I, and I'm going to find that book and put that in the show notes as well, because uh, that's something I have to read. I'm real big on, on working on listening and I talk about it a lot. I mean, there's, there's act, there's listening sins and there's active listening skills that if you put into practice, it will make a huge difference. And what you'll find is that people that you work with will start coming to you, confiding in you more because they know that their words are not falling on deaf ears and that, that you're actually listening to them and that you will provide the appropriate response necessary. Or in some instances, you just need to listen. You don't need to say anything. You just need to listen because we all as human beings need someone that will listen to us. And we only talk to those that we know truly do listen to us. Well, and if your people are your most important resource, you should be listening to them. Absolutely. At all times. 
<laughs> at all times. Randy, well, I, I so appreciate you having me. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. If anyone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Twitter. Okay. At Greg M. Graves. Twitter at Greg M. Graves. I have a growing following. That's how we connected. Almost every day. Eventually, my website will come out when the book comes out, uh, www.greggraves.com. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll link to that as well. And certainly when the book comes out, we'll be sure to, uh, to highlight it. I'll, I'll mention it on the uh, podcast and we'll be sure to give it, give it a highlight in, um, the Zweig letter, um, uh, newsletter. So I think people will, will benefit from that, but thank you so much, Greg. We really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be with us today on the Zweig letter podcast. Thank you, Randy. Okay. Well, folks, there you have it. Another episode of the Zweig Glitter Podcast. It was so great to sit down with Greg and, and really talk with him. I hope you listened to what he had to share. He dropped some real nuggets and uh, we'll go over all that in the show notes and certainly want to encourage you to, to check out Greg. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Greg M. Graves. And uh, definitely we'll put a link to his website so that when his book does come out, we want you all of the Zweig uh, Letter Podcast listeners to to flood Amazon or whatever, wherever you can buy his book and, and just order it uh, for him. And so uh, we know it'll, it's it's still a ways to go before it comes out. But when it does, we want to certainly be, be sure that you do that. Uh, that's all that we have for you. As always, we want to encourage you to continue to check out the Zweig Letter online at thezweigletter.com. Uh, you can also check out Zweig Group at zweiggroup.com. Remember, we're doing things on a regular basis as a rising tide lists all ship, ships. That's what we're trying to do here, helping each and every design firm just be better. And uh, we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day. We know that there's a lot of things that you could do, but you've taken time out to listen to this podcast, and we certainly do appreciate it. You can always check us out wherever great podcasts can be found. We have over 170 episodes. That's right, 170 episodes of the Wide Letter Podcast. So there's a little bit of something there for everyone. Check us out wherever great podcasts can be found. Rate and review the podcast. And, um, you know, we'll catch you on the upside. So we'll see you real soon. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Zweig Letter Podcast. We hope that you can be part of elevating the industry and that you can apply our advice and information to your daily professional life. For a free digital subscription to The Zweig Letter, please visit thezweigletter.com slash subscribe to gain more wisdom and inspiration in addition to information about leadership, finance, HR, and marketing your firm. Subscribe today.